This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, March 22, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court case of Lawrence v. Texas was about more than the prohibition on homosexual conduct at issue in the case. According to Dale Carpenter, it was about homosexual status as well. Carpenter is author of the new book, Flagrant Conduct, the story of Lawrence v. Texas. He spoke about the book at the Cato Institute March 16th. The decision that resulted from Lawrence versus Texas, from that litigation, is as close to a Brown versus Board of Education for gay men and lesbians as we, are, as we have had so far. Uh, certainly the most important decision yet, a landmark decision for the rights, at least, of gay men and lesbians. Yet very little, I think, is known about the actual background of the case and the events that led from a bedroom arrest or an apartment arrest to the Texas courts to the Supreme Court. And that is the story that this book tells. Over the next uh, 20 minutes or so, I can't recount every one of those stories. Uh, There isn't the time. And in addition, I want you to read and buy the book. Um, It is available um, right outside, and I'm happy to sign the books after all of this is over. So I I hope um, that I can just tease you enough into buying this so you won't read all of these wonderful reviews and feel like that's a substitute for actually picking it up. There's there's more in there. The, um, The Texas statute at issue was passed in 1973 by the Texas legislature. It was the end product of a process of revision over a period of 120 years in Texas, a process that paralleled changes in American law in general, such that the state moved from banning the crime not fit to be named, as uh, Sir William Blackstone once called it, a crime against nature, to a crime that specified certain kinds of sexual acts between certain people. By the time it reached its refined stage in 1973 in Texas, it forbade both oral and anal sex between two people of the same sex, but it allowed identical activity to occur between two people of the opposite sex. That same year, in Texas's comprehensive revision of its criminal code, the state saw fit to decriminalize adultery, to decriminalize seduction on promise of marriage, and even to decriminalize bestiality. Which means that as of that year, Texas declared its public policy that it was permissible for a person to have sex with an animal but not to have sex with another person to whom you had committed your life and for whom you were responsible. That statement by itself was a powerful one. And while the law was styled and titled a conduct law, a homosexual conduct law, I believe that the effect of that law and of similar sodomy laws around the country was to effectively criminalize not just conduct, but the very status of being a gay person in our society, with consequences that suffused every area of the law, as I'll mention a bit later. Um, I came to write this book when I tried to write a law review article for the Michigan Law Review right after the decision came down, 
and decided I needed to write a factual background section to the law review and realized when I read the decisions that there was no factual background available. If you look at the decisions of the courts, including the Supreme Court, you get at most a paragraph that says uh, Harris County police entered an apartment where they saw two men engaged in sex that violated the state sodomy law, so-called, took the men to jail. They challenged their arrest under the Constitution's equal protection and due process clauses and ultimately succeeded in Justice Kennedy's opinion. And I thought there had to be something more to the case than that in the background. For one thing, I was trying to get tenure and I needed to write longer articles. So I started calling around to my friends in Houston, whom I'd known since the 1990s when I lived in Houston, in fact lived there when these arrests occurred, and who I knew from my own political activity, my political involvement at the time, both in the Republican Party and in the gay civil rights movement. And um, I just assumed that the police had seen what they said they had seen, and that's the way I began my question with that assumption built in to one of these civil rights leaders who stopped me over the phone and said, now Dale, you're assuming that the police saw them having sex and that they were having sex. And I paused for a couple of seconds to let that sink in. And I said, well, of course I'm assuming that. That is the, what everyone believes about the case. And that was the basis for challenging the Texas homosexual conduct law and these arrests. And he responded, well, I think you need to do some more digging. So that got me thinking that there might be more to this case. How is it that police end up on the threshold to a bedroom and observe two people having sex? Didn't they announce their presence? Didn't they knock on the door? Wasn't there time to disengage before the police actually saw anything? These are the kinds of questions that had no answer and that I was trying to seek out. As I started digging around, I tended to get one of two kinds of answers from civil rights activists down in Houston and from lawyers who had represented Lawrence and Garner. One kind of answer said to me, yes, that's right, there is a lot more to this, and in fact, we believe they weren't having sex. And the other kind of answer, especially from the lawyers, was we don't talk about that. And of course, as soon as I heard that, I knew I had a story. And the question is how I was going to get it and whether I could fit it into a larger narrative about what made that fact important, why it might have mattered that the police could walk into the home of a private citizen and arrest the people found inside for doing nothing. So I interviewed uh, the police, three of the four police who were first on the scene. I ultimately was able to interview Lawrence and Garner themselves, although initially at least the lawyers would not let them answer questions about what they were doing inside the apartment. I interviewed activists who were close to the case. I interviewed law clerks, uh, people who were working for the judge whose uh, uh, court the case ended up in at the lowest level, the Justice of the Peace Court. I interviewed judges themselves. I interviewed the lawyers who crafted the constitutional arguments to 
get a sense of how they shaped their arguments, what sort of choices they made in deciding to emphasize certain arguments rather than others. I interviewed the prosecutor in Harris County who made decisions about what kinds of ways Texas would defend the law and what it was not willing to do in defending the law. And from all of that, I came to uh, a number of different conclusions, um, one of which is that I believe that Lawrence and Garner, in fact, probably were not having sex when the police walked into their apartment. Part of this is based on the sheer improbability of the story that the police tell, which I, uh, uh, which I relay in some detail in the book, uh, and which I could happily regale you with some other time. Um, Part of it is based on what the men themselves did shortly after the arrest, when they were taken to jail, should say dragged off to jail, um, and uh, pleaded not guilty in response to the charges against them. And then ultimately, a year ago, this April, um, John Lawrence finally insisted to his attorneys that he be allowed to speak about the full background of the case. He knew that he was ill, very ill, and he wanted to tell his side of the story. There had never been a trial in this case because the challengers had agreed to the version of the facts alleged by the police in a 70-word or so complaint. And I got to sit down with him last Good Friday in April, and he told me directly that the police barged in, that the men were either fully or partially clothed, that they were as much as 15 feet apart and were not doing anything. And I started to ask questions about um, why is it that the police would have done something like that? Well, one immediate answer is that this, can, this kind of thing could happen in any case, anytime the police are present in any home. They could come up with charges that, do not, that, are, that aren't really based in fact uh, but there seemed to be a special reason why the police might have charged falsely in this case. And a number of those factors, I believe, were at work when they entered John Lawrence's partner uh, apartment that night. Uh, one of them is that they were certainly angry and frustrated that they had been called to the apartment on a false report of a weapons disturbance in a very complicated uh, series of events that are also described in the book. But the second, and this is very clear from my interviews of the police officers and from uh, John Lawrence and Tyrone Garner themselves, they were, uh, their homophobia was aroused. Their very idea that not any particular act was illegal, but the status of being gay was illegal and allowed people to be targeted simply for being rather than for doing. The homosexual conduct law in Texas should have been called a homosexual status law. Dale Carpenter is author of Flagrant Conduct, the story of Lawrence v. Texas. He spoke at the Cato Institute March 16th. You can watch the full event at cato.org.